Hello and welcome to Fintech Impact. Just a reminder, as always, please sign up for my newsletter at jasonperera.ca where you'll get notification of all my podcasts, blogs, and other goings on. On to today's show. Today on the show, I have Dr. Dale Crosby, best-selling author and chief behavioral officer at Brinker Capital. Dr. Crosby has the near unique perspective of someone who gets paid to figure out ways to take behavioral finance theory and implement it in real life. And he's come on the show today to specifically talk about his new platform, Tulip, which does just that. And with that, here's my interview with Dr. Crosby. Hello, Daniel. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for taking some of your quarantine time to speak with me. <laughs> well, got nothing but time. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's a real dichotomy between those of us who are working just as busy as before and those of us who are <laughs> So, Dr. Daniel Crosby, uh, Chief Behavioral Officer of Brinker Capital and also, I believe, founder of Tulip. Is that correct? That's right. Founder of Tulip. Tell us about Tulip. So Tulip is a behavioral analytics platform for financial advisors. So it all operates from the premise that the highest value that a financial advisor adds to her or his client's lives uh, comes through behavioral coaching. But historically, that process has been pretty unsystematic. Your ability to be a behavioral coach largely rose or fell with some of you know, your, your personal attributes. And we wanted to systematize that process, give more data around that process, and standardize the process so that every advisor could become a skilled behavioral coach. Excellent. So we'll dive into that because that's a pretty loaded statement because we can talk about how unstructured it's been and how you're trying to structure it. But before we get to that, tell us about your personal history, your position at Brinker, and then what led to the creation of Tulip. So that might take a while. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of my personal history, I think the salient thing to know is that I'm a, a clinical psychologist by education, which makes me a little bit of an odd duck in, in the world of finance. So I studied to be a shrink, but about three years into my doctoral degree in clinical psychology, I was really just frankly kind of burning out. The client work was very heavy. I was, you know, it's important work. It was meaningful work, but it was also definitely the kind of work that I was taking home with me on the weekend. I loved thinking about human behavior, but I didn't love the sort of medical clinical aspects of it. Mm -hmm. And so I started to look for an application of psychology that was non-clinical. So my dad is a financial advisor. Uh, and even though at the time my dad wouldn't have known the term behavioral economics or behavioral finance, my dad said, you know, effectively, there's a lot of psychology in what I do. So maybe you can see if there's business applications or, you know, financial applications of psychology. So when I started down this rabbit hole, I initially got a job with a bank betting bankers pre-hire. So before a banker would get hired, I would give them an IQ test, a personality test, like a half day grilling effectively to see if they would be a good fit for the bank. And this in the bank, I discovered behavioral economics and, and found that there was this real, real dearth of accessible content. There was a lot of like great research, like ivory tower type academic research, but there mm -hmm. wasn't much for people like my dad, people sort of advisors in the trenches. And so I set out- So no real actionable, my... like this is how you take that learning. It's interesting. I actually had an interview on this with the local newspaper about how do you take behavioral finance and apply it? And so it's, a lot of it's very informal. So sorry to cut you off there. I just wanted to, to, to jump in there, but go right ahead. No, that, that that's absolutely right. And so what I found, you know, I went out on my own and so was on my own for nine, nine or 10 years, you know, writing books, giving 
talks to financial advisors, consulting with financial services firms. And you know what I found is exactly what you found. There was a great deal of interest in behavioral finance. There was some of the foundational academic work had been done by you know people much smarter than me, but no one was really kind of taking it that last mile and giving concrete applicable tools to advisors. And so that's how about a year and a half ago, that's how my role with Brinker Capital emerged. They had been a longtime client of mine and they just showed a willingness to really take this the next step. They showed a willingness to develop training tools and technology to sit on an advisor's desk and help help an advisor in the everyday application of behavioral finance. So yeah, about a year and a half ago, I became the chief behavioral officer at Brinker, which makes me one of about three in the world, I think. I was going to say, I can <laughs> in, name in terms- probably two others if I tried <laughs> yeah. and struggling to remember right. the name of the second one. So yeah, yeah. you guys yeah. have a so, very uh, small conference. <laughs> Yeah, so we we we're all very friendly. How's that? Uh, yeah, we all we all thank each other in our books. So yeah, that was a very progressive move. But you know, my stated reason I was you know I was having a great time on my own. My stated reason for joining Brinker was just to have sort of resources for building out Tulip and and some of these other tools that would that help these resources sit on an advisor's desk in a, in a more real way. So, I mean, that's, that's quite the chasm when you really think about it, right? Like taking the abstract concepts that are put forth by, again, the ivory tower people who won various Nobel prizes, which uh, was groundbreaking work and, and figuring out how to basically, yes, digitize where the triggers for that or understanding it. So I mean, there's, there's so many different ways to apply it. Where did you start when tasked with this effort? Yeah. So I started, I knew one thing for sure. One of the first things you learn as a psychologist is that self-reported behavior is a horrible measure of of actual behavior. Psychology is rife with problems, partially because we're asking people questions about their alcohol consumption, their level of mental illness, their sex life, their propensity to make different decisions at different times with their money. Like all of this stuff is really taboo. All of this stuff is really sort of opaque. Um, People think they're much better at sort of giving an objective recounting of their behavior than they actually are. So one of the things that that I knew for sure is that this thing had to be rooted in something that was behaviorally based, historically based, and gamified, really. It needed to be experiential and not a paper and pencil quiz. And so the way that we got around that, if you look at most assessments of risk-taking behavior, and TULIP is is more than a risk tolerance questionnaire, even though that is a a small fraction of what we measure. But if you look at most of them, it's a self-report, which will say, in one form or another, what would you do if you lost whatever, 15 or 20% of your account value, what would you do? Would you stay the course? Would you panic? Would you, you know, do nothing? And people's ability to answer that objectively is just, it's just not there. And especially because every look at the mess we're in right now, someone might answer this one way, but then when COVID-19 hits, they go, well, wait a minute. Like, you know, yeah, in the sterile confines of an academic assessment, I'm going to say one thing. When I'm worried about my health and my money and the economy, like it's a different, it's a different ball game. So what Tulip does is two things. First of all, it just looks at past behavior. So sort of one of these no duh moments from psychology is that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So what we do is we aggregate accounts and we look at historical trading behavior. If you panicked in 08, 09, there's some assumption that you're panicky. There's some assumption that that you may be a little panicky, but 
there was a weakness in that. And the weakness is, of course, if you're working with an advisor, the advisor's advice can have an impact on what you do. Like you might have been extremely panicky in 08 or 09, but you may not have panic sold because your advisor kept you invested. So we, we look at behavior, but we know that even looking at behavior is an imperfect measure. So we also have a gamified simulation of 30 years of market history that allows the client to sort of pre-experience what markets are like, make different decisions about their portfolio over that time frame, and do it all in the space of about five or six minutes. So, I mean, lots of things to unpack there. You talked about, I guess, you know, we'll go back to Schiller and talk about narrative economics, you know, making that decision in a void of you sitting in a comfortable room at home while things are fine is one thing. Making that decision against the narrative of COVID-19, the great financial crisis, something else, where you're worried about the future of society as a whole is a completely different context to answer that question. And so I, I get exactly where you're coming from. So you also mentioned that, of course, I guess it's one thing if they're coming from a do-it-yourself style model, you can probably more accurately measure their reaction to risk factors. But how do you account for the advisor buffer on all this? Like, is there a metric for like, you know, the advisor reached out at this time or the advisor's notes saying, I talked him out of going to cash at this point. Like, how do you, how do you handle that? Yeah, so we have to do a couple of things and without totally giving everything away. We look at we look at multiple data points, right? We look at frequency of inbound contact. Like how much is that person, does that person's frequency of inbound contact rise or fall during periods of market volatility? Are they blowing their advisors, you know, email and phone up every day? Or are they able to stay the course? Uh, you can look at things like how often they're logging in, correlating uh, frequency of login. You can look at, and then of course, you've got the simulation itself, which is not mediated by the advisor. And there's many other things, but those are just a few examples of things that are short of selling. You didn't go all the way to making sort of a catastrophic sell decision, but we do have some evidence that your anxiety was amplified during this time, nonetheless. It's funny because before we met and um, we were kindly introduced by Cameron Passmore, and for those who haven't checked out Rational Reminder, there's a plug for their podcast, which is fantastic. I will say this much. I have spoken to many risk tolerance softwares over the years. I personally know the people from Finometrica. I've interviewed, um, I've interviewed Riskalyze. I've had conversations surrounding this. And you know, as much as I, re- I have full respect for the psychometric profiling that they do and then the pretty much prospect theory approach as well. But I've been waiting for something like this to be developed, right? I mean, now that we are exist in a world that's a pool of data, I completely agree with you. Stated desire versus displayed desire or whatever psychological term there is for those two things are two very different things, right? We all want to be the best for I want to go to the gym every day. My waist size tells you otherwise, okay? Uh, <laughs> that's a very easy thing to see. Whereas we are now sitting on a pool of data that allows us to actually try to, the next generation of assessing risk, risk tolerance is basically taking all this in and stopping, not asking people what they're going to do, but listening to what they actually do. And I think you're kind of taking that midpoint, which is instead of just looking at what they've actually done, let's also look at gamifying it to give them a what if scenario to create that same environment where they could, we can collect that kind of data as well. That's not about right. Yeah, well, and, you know, uh, to your point, I have a ton of respect for Riskalyze and Finometrica. They both do really good work. Yep. But, you know, I'm, I'm sort of measuring a, a different construct here. I'm measuring risk-taking behavior holistically because mm. we've had this sort of academic problem in the industry, which is there's really three facets to risk. 
there's risk capacity, which is how much time and how much money you've got, right? Yep. And you know, all things equal, more time and more money means more capacity. There's risk tolerance, which is your sort of stated long-term ideas about risk return trade-offs, which are unchanging and then are relatively unchanging. And then you've got risk composure, which is the likelihood, it's effectively your level of neuroticism to use a clinical term. It's effectively your level of anxiety. It's how quickly are you moved off of those long-term goals? So you can talk to someone who's panic selling their portfolio, you know, at a time of market volatility and go, should you be doing this? Which is effectively a risk tolerance question. And they would go, no, I should not be doing it, but I'm about to. Right? And so that's a, that's a risk composure question. So all advisors care about is risk-taking behavior. And you, you, there's this conflict between academicians and advisors because advisors have said for years, look, my client's risk, uh, risk tolerance is dynamic. Like it's all over the place. Sometimes they want to shoot the lights out. Sometimes they're scared as can be. And the academicians have retorted, no, that's not true because risk tolerance doesn't change, which is true, but unimportant because what changes is is risk-taking behavior. So we're trying to sort of bypass this academic wonky argument and just measure what advisors want to measure. Yeah. And it's interesting because Paul Resnick of uh, Finometrica specifically titled, well, stated that that is a difference between risk tolerance and risk sentiment, right? The current mm-hmm. sentiment in the marketplace is basically that they're able to, they feel that Tesla is going to go to a thousand because it's already gone to whatever number, right? Versus right now where they're worried that, you know, the economy is not going to restart in time, right? So I would say that they're both relevant data points. And too often, I'd say my side of the table gets too caught up in the sentiment and not the tolerance. And I think that's largely displayed through the lack of adoption of academically proven risk tolerance and assessment tools within the industry. I mean, if you look at the T3 survey, less than 50% of people actually use anything. And even then, a big chunk of those are internally developed questionnaires by by marketing departments, which is not great. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's incredible when you see those things and you know, it's like riskalyze is way out front, Finometric is second, and it still doesn't add up to 50%. Not even adoption. Close. It's wild. Yep. I've often said that, you know, I honestly think it's a massive gap in regulation and, and just, and just structure of business. And I honestly think that over time, it's actually pretty big growth areas. So your timing's not bad on this because, <laughs> because honestly, as uh, whether it be, whether it be regulation or law or case law, whatever it is, there's only one direction that the need for assessing people's risk tolerance, capacity, composure, all that stuff goes, and that's upward, right? So I can't imagine that that adoption rate drops over time. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And and one day the U.S. will catch up to the rest of the world and and start requiring (laughs) requiring more of people's formal assessments of risk. Oh, my friend, if you wait, wait, you just wait a minute, you just you just trash the U.S. on doing something compared to Canada. I'm sorry. Um, I know you guys are behind Australia and and the U.K., but you have no idea how bad it is. (laughs) No, no. I, I I spent three months in Canada. I worked I worked in Canada. I worked in Western Canada for three months with a large uh, bank there, and I got to see just how bad it was. But yes, West, Western Europe and Australia have us beat for sure. Oh, yeah. Have, oh, yeah. have North America beat. Oh, yeah, by a long shot. But I mean, like, you know, you trashing the US in my mind is, is like, wait a sec, I can't even, we can't even get to your level at this point. <laughs> You're so far <laughs> behind. Anyway, so tell me about the entire flow of the experience. Experience, right, so I'm going to put this in front of a consumer of my of my client in order to best harness the power of this tool. What does that experience look like, start to finish? 
So start to finish, you're going to go in and what, one of the things you're going to do early on is enter your actual data in terms of your actual age, your actual years to retirement, your actual investable wealth. And then we're going to create a simulation based on that. Because one of the critiques of other measures of risk-taking behavior is that they'll ask questions in a vacuum, like if you lost $10,000, would that be a big deal or not? And if you have $10 million, it's not a very big deal. And if you have $15,000, it's a very, very big deal. So you have them enter some basic information. There are a couple of risk, couple of uh, risk capacity questions. There's a couple of risk tolerance questions. And then you begin the sort of the meat of the experience, which is a simulated market. So we take actual years of market history. We randomize them so that you never know quite what you're going to get. And you don't know, you know, oh, the year 2000 is coming up. I might want to get defensive, right? We randomize this year. That's post game this system. Got <laughs> right. it, all right. Yeah, so, we, so we, we randomize these years and we ask the clients to make decisions about their portfolio. And every three years, every three years, you know, which takes just a few seconds, the simulation stops and you get sort of what we call what we call our Iron Man screen. If you know an Iron Man, he gets a, sort of all that information presented to him. Awesome. So you get the you get your Jarvis screen, right? You get the Iron Man screen that says, you know, here's your performance relative to the S and P. Here's what other people are doing. Here's a news alert, and mm. we take actual news alerts from history, slightly sort of de-identified, but we take actual news events from history, and we give them relative performance. We give them effectively a financial forecast. And we say, what do you want to do? What do you want to do with your portfolio now? And then every three years, we give new updates, new comparisons, new reporting, uh, new news reports. And so what we're doing in the background, of course, and I'm not going to, of course, talk about everything, the specifics of everything, but what we're doing in the background is, is getting a lot of behavioral data, right? We're seeing what sorts of levels of volatility spook them. We're seeing how active they are. We're seeing how likely they are to tweak their portfolio. We're seeing how bought in they are to the news and sort of how bought into financial forecasting. We're seeing if they, we give sort of a recommended level from the outset or sort of a recommended portfolio. We see how likely they are to take good advice effectively, how, how coachable they are and a host of other variables. And then, you know, we play that out. And so at the end, what you get is this wealth of information in this report. You get information about how emotional they are, how prone to be excessively conservative they are, how prone they are to sort of give undue credence to news results. You give them a number. This is, this is one of my favorite things. You give them a number that's the value of, of advice. So effectively, mm-hmm. what you do is you compare their actual portfolio to the advised portfolio and you examine the delta and you say, look, this is the value of advice. This is how much taking good advice could have saved you over the course of this 30 years. So one of the things that advisors have a hard time doing is quantifying the value of being a decisional coach and what many of us call behavioral alpha. Like we have some innate sense that this works, but what we're doing is look saying, look, over an investment lifetime, getting some counsel, getting some advice would have saved you X. And I can tell you from our early simulations, it it has tended to be a pretty big number because people unsurprisingly are doing some pretty, pretty silly things when uh, left to their own devices in in these volatile markets. And what's cool too, I I forgot one step. We asked them about some of their goals early on. Okay. And we, we asked them to sort of rank and prioritize their goals. 
And so then we report out the value of advice relative to those goals. So we say, let's say it's a, you know, it's half a million dollars is the value of advice. Let's say if your goal is to send a kid to college, you'd say uh, your value of advice was half a million dollars, which is 10 years education at an Ivy League institution. If your goal was to go on a vacation, we say the value of advice was half a million dollars, which is 50 trips to Toronto or whatever it is, right? So we say we couch it in terms that they can understand and we want to make it very practical for them. So then we kind of go through these four behaviors that I talked about earlier. And then we have a list of, we have uh, at the end, we have reciprocal commitments. And this is something that the advisor can customize, right? Mm -hmm. So the commitments, we see advice as a two-way street. And I think, unfortunately, the research shows that clients think, I'm going to come in, I'm going to give you my money, don't screw it up, like effectively. And, you know, whether I whether I make it to the finish line or not has primarily to do with how skilled my advisor is and not anything to do with my own behaviors. And we're trying to change that. The old delegation of blame paradigm. There you go. (laughs) That's good. That's good. It's exactly what it is. Right. And so what we're doing is saying, look, this is a two-way street. This is a two-way street and saying, here's what I, your advisor, am going to do. Here's my part of the bargain. I'm going to, you know, monitor your portfolio. I'm going to give you sound counsel. I'm going to do, you know, these six things. For your part, these are the things that you need to do, and they're going to be taken from the assessment. So mm-hmm. if this person shows a tendency to pay undue heed to, to financial news, say, you might say, okay, one of the things that caused you some problems is you were, you know, a little tuned into the financial news. So what I need you to do is whatever, turn off the TV. Cancel your WSJ subscription. There you go. That's right. That's right. (laughs) So the cool part there is it's not like a stock thing. Like whatever that client's, whatever that client's specific behavioral tendencies are, we're going to give you a sort of a a document that, that outlines them. And then the final piece, which is based on some great work by Robert Cialdini, we actually, it's double signed. So this seems a little maybe formal, but it's, it's a form of pre-commitment, right? It's a pre-commitment and it's, it's one of these things where the advisor can say, look, you know, Mr. Smith, we knew from the TULIP assessment that you were going to be a little emotional and that you were going to tune into the news. And we knew that the, these tendencies were going to cost you X dollars. So what we want to do, you know, so when he, when, when COVID-19 hits and he's freaking out, you go, okay, we knew there would be days like this. We knew that this was, you know, you were prone to this. We knew there would be days like this and we committed not to do it. And uh, the research shows that people who have signed even a simple document like that are dramatically more likely to comply with it than people who have not. So that's sort of the basic reporting and how the conversation might go. Fantastic. No, it's uh, basically signing your name to something is a very powerful psychological thing because it's, you know, we only sign things that we're committed to, right? And I totally get where that comes from. So number of questions unpacked around that entire thing. You know, one of the things that (laughs) I often have had clients come back to me with response questionnaires saying, look, I I didn't know what to answer, right? And you have to train, like, there is no right answer. Just just think about how you would honestly react to that. What's the feedback been on the input side thus far? Any kind of hiccups, bubbles? Have there been more refinement or changes that you weren't expecting to have to make there? Well, one of the things that we did, we, we built a sort of a, uh, an MVP. We built sort of a working prototype and it was admittedly pretty ugly and we put some people through Good. it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you so should be embarrassed which, by it. Right. That's the old, um, Oh God, Reed Hoffman saying you should be embarrassed by your first version of your product. I was so, <laughs> so good for me, but yeah. So 
it just needed to be a little more user friendly. So now we have, what do you call them? Sort of the, the ghost marks that it's like a walk you through, you know, walk you mm -hmm. through all the functionality. It's very, very clean. It's gorgeous now, if I do say so. And so it's very intuitive. And so the second iteration is just much more user friendly. And I think before there was too much to sort of pay attention to. And so this mm -hmm. modal screen, the Iron Man screen brings everything you need to the forefront when you need it. And it allows people to do it in a much more streamlined way does it have a girl friday telling him to do or jarvis whatever <laughs> depending it, on it, it, <laughs> it just it does not that's uh we'll we'll look look for that in 2.0 so you mentioned that you were comparing it to the advised models so where is that sort of baseline coming from where like where is the data on the advised model uh being generated so that's just our initial recommendation i mean it's it's effectively what you did versus doing nothing so mm -hmm. we have we have a model that comes out from based on the the initial questions that they answer it's uh, based on those three facets we talked about capacity composure and tolerance those quick questions we set an advised model and then we just compare what they did to doing nothing. And it's been, you know, there are some people that do fine, but the majority of people do horribly. And so hmm. that's been our experience so far. Well, I mean, it's the common belief that when things happen, you have to do something. Yes. And more often than not, the academic literature proves that, no, just just hold on. And basically, whether it's the index or not, just stop reacting to the short-term news. And the reality is, is that but the that doesn't trickle down to the consumer. They're sold the Wolf of Wall Street myth that everything is rapid trading and throwing footballs around and parting in nondescript ways. Um, <laughs> But <laughs> yeah. so it's not not always surprising. So basically, essentially, someone comes out to some sort of risk profile that says their portfolio, lack of better term, is a 60-40 mix of whatever it is, and it should be diversified in the following way. You buy and hold. This is what it's going to look like. Assume that the advisor basically keeps you in that portfolio versus left to your own devices. Oh, my goodness, look what you did to yourself. And it's That's right. Yeah. You said the, the entire difficulty advisors have demonstrating value sometimes. I totally get that, having lived that all the time, because it's never the same for two clients, right? For the most neurotic client who's willing to listen on a portfolio, you're right. Like this is the demonstration. Oh my God, look how much I could have, I could have saved you. Other ones, it could be a tax, it could be the area of taxation, but you know, it's one of these things where short of them having an identical twin who behaves in the exact same way, not listening to your advice or paying you for it, and then comparing those results 10 years later, it is very difficult to necessarily show just how, you know, the decisions you made are impacting their lives uh, compared to the baseline. So yeah, this tool, thank you for, for, that, for making that easier. Now, one other question for you, and this comes out of some other risk tolerance reading I've met, I've read in the past. Is there any sort of contextual change here at any point based on dollar value of the account? Because there is some behavioral finance literature that says that risk tolerance is sometimes is basically subject to prospect theory to some degree. So uh, you may be, you know, at $50,000, it doesn't bother you as much to be as risky, but at $5 million, it's going to give you a heart attack. Is that adaptive here? Or is that just something that you don't buy into based on literature? No, no, I do. So here's what's interesting. I do buy into it on average. But the thing about averages is that they're true of most people, but no person in particular. And so what we do by allowing, you know, people to enter their own, their own information and play their own game and have us observe their own behavior is that may absolutely be the case. That may absolutely mm -hmm. be the case, but if it is, we'll observe it. And if it's not, we won't. So I'm completely on board with the literature that says risk tolerance tends to change at different levels of wealth, but that's true in aggregate, but not of anyone in particular. And we can take a much uh, more finer tooth approach to, to measuring that. 
So I'm curious, what has the response of the test subjects been who saw that they their own behavior led them down the wrong road? Have they just been like, well, I don't, I don't buy this, or this game is rigged, or have they been like, so maybe I uh, should give that guy a raise? Like, what's the general what's the general feedback been from the people who ended up testing this? Well, so it's it's funny. There's been two things. So first of all, people have wanted to take it again. Because, you know, people are naturally competitive and they're like, okay, I learned. This was a game that I lost. I'm going to win next (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, what's what's interesting, though, is this this wasn't sort of an anticipated use case for me, but it's one of these emergent things. It's a tutorial. Like, I mean, it's an educational. Mm. I had it sort of teed up as an solely as an assessment, but it really is a great educational opportunity for them to play it and replay it and think about it as an educational tool. The second thing that I think that it's done well is that is it allowed advisors to have this conversation non-defensively mm-hmm. because Michael Kitsis and other people have raised what is a, a very good question, which is if what you're selling is effectively saving people from stupidity and like their own bad behavior, how do you have that conversation in a way that's palatable? You don't bring your client in and say, you know, hey, Mrs. Jones, you're kind of a dummy and you're, you know, yeah. you're biased and you're what you're feeling is wrong. Yeah. Right. So it, it lets people without the advisor saying that it lets people live it out, express it in their own terms. And look, most people are good at some facets of this and bad at other. Some of these things they're going to probably do well on some they're going to do poorly on. So it allows the advisor to have a, a balanced conversation people can kind of chuckle at their own sort of panic and irrationality in a way that's undeniable. And it doesn't leave the advisor to have to have this hard conversation about, you know, look, psychologists have identified 200 ways you can screw up your financial life. You know, it's not a very, it's not a very easy to hear conversation until you've lived it firsthand. Yeah. I mean, we, we all have those experiences with the client who wants to suddenly go all in on a market and then, you know, you stop them and they're a little bit perturbed and then next month the market turns and they're like, okay, thank you. Right. Like, <laughs> but we can't, we can't count on that happening every time. Right. That's so, right. So uh, I'm curious, for the people who decided that they wanted to try to beat the game the second time, how did their scores compare the second time versus the first? Oh, well, it's interesting. So since it's randomized, people's ability to game it in the most simple way is kind of thwarted. Now, I think people are more measured the second time around on average, but they still, some of the bad years might hit you in year one instead of year 30. And you just, you know, you still kind of don't know what's coming. So yes, people are in general better, but the randomization element makes it hard to game it in totality. But it's still, I mean, it's, it, the fact that they took it a second time and maybe didn't do that much better than they thought they would because the questions are all randomized now and data points are all randomized <laughs> right. must really hit them between the eyes of saying, okay, I can do this a third time. But going this from, is hard. Yeah, but this <laughs> is, okay. You know, yeah. if anything, I would almost say, I feel like you should encourage them to do it over and over and over again because it's just going to hammer the point in. Although, assuming they have the time. Yeah. I'm curious too. So one of the things that I encounter quite frequently, I'm sure their advisors do, is that the concept of risk for clients almost differs for that, the money that they give to advisors versus the money they run themselves. And I'm sure that more than one advisors had a client come to them saying, no, no, I'm, I'm not a risk taker. I'm not a, you know, I don't take a lot of risk, but I'm in a hundred percent blue chip equity stocks paying dividends, right? And it's like, I'm sorry, there is no universe that says that you're in a hundred percent stock where that doesn't blow up in your face at some point. Yeah. So, so I'm wondering, like, is how do you, how does your system perchance per deal with that or at all deal with that? Like, is that in the initial stages where they, you know, you basically say, well, you, you were, you were here, but you should be here and then still prove to them they can't handle it properly. Like, is that, is that something you address? So how does it deal? 
how does it deal with money held away versus money with the advisor? More so the, the con I will call it a differentiating context of risk. When when the risk is being placed on someone else, like our let me take a step back on that one. They they're very people are very poor at understanding the risk they're exposed to and contextualizing what they think the risk tolerance is. Pretty straightforward, right? Now, example of the 100% yes. stock to whatever. Is there any kind of piece of this that coaches them through to say, well, no, what you consider this big safe thing is actually not safe. Do you show them like the contrast of like their starting point of 100% stock and then, and then push them to something else? Yes. So there's a couple, a couple of things that I think address with what you're talking about. One is currently there and one is uh, for a future iteration. One of the things that we do, you know, when you get this, call it the Iron Man modal screen every couple of years, it allow, you know, it has the risk slider and you can, you can toy with your risk. So one of the things we know about how people think about risk is that people tend to fall into one of two buckets primarily when they think about risk. Some people are sort of downside first when they think about risk and others are upside first. Mm -hmm. So what you notice very quickly in the game is that by cranking your risk to, in one direction or other messes with both your upside and your downside. And so I think it's a very tactile, a very real, a very concrete way for people to understand whatever the flip side consideration is, let's call it, because if they tend to be return first investors, they see that cranking up the risk can give them some real gut-wrenching drawdowns. And the, the reverse is also true. And then the, the thing that we're working on right now is the ability to sort of do, call them counterfactuals. To sort of use the report to go back through the game and say, okay, what would have happened if you had just ignored the news? What would have happened if like all these news headlines that we gave you to, to sort of guide your thinking, if you just left them alone? What would happen if you bought every dip? So yep. it would allow us to sort of compare different scenarios. And so I think that uh, that's not currently live, but it's something we're working on. And I think that'll be another powerful right. tool for teaching about risk. I would generally agree. I think that a lot of this is just about how people frame things and the context in which you frame them is powerful in educating them as to what behaviors are positive and negative. And I think that's you know, largely what you've accomplished here and seem to be looking to do in the future. So beyond the, the consumer experience, tell me about the advisor outputs. So we've talked about the, the need for them to sign off on what they're going to do and the client does at the same time. But what does the output to the advisor look like? Altogether. Yeah. So the advisor output is going to differ slightly from the end investor output. And so I'll talk through some of those differences. So the advisor output is going to have a sort of an, an overall score, right? Sort of an overall score. It's also going to have a, a score that we have landed on calling return on effort score, which was mm -hmm. in my head, I originally referred to as the pain in the neck score, because it tells you, it tells you how much that client is going to basically call you, right? Like how much is mm -hmm. that client how much are they going to freak out? How much are they going to call you? How much are they going to want to tweak their portfolio? And even, you know, relative to the assets that they have. And so that return on effort score, I think it, one of the things that I think advisors need to, to be better about is just saying no to, you know, a certain subset of clients. And I don't know that anxiety level is the salient yay or nay, but I think that advisors need to say no to more people. And that's one of the ways that that can be thought about. Yeah, I've often said that, uh, you know, the, the first part of any advisor client relationship should be a fit meeting or something and getting a sense for if you guys can on the same page as to how you can work. I'm sure there's plenty of people can deal with neurotic, neurotic clients, but we all have our thresholds for how neurotic they can get. And I, I do like That's the right. entire like screening. Uh, I was going to ask you, is this a screening tool for getting rid of the clients that you 
feel you can't deal with. And frankly, that's not a negative thing. That's actually a positive thing because when you mismatch advisor to client, you get suboptimal outcomes one way or the other, right? So finding the ones who are really, really good at coaching people through this sort of thing, those are the ones that the neurotic ones need. Yeah, that's right. If, if you love behavioral coaching, if you don't mind and you take pleasure in sort of talking people off the ledge, then, then you should be undeterred by that. Mm-hmm. If you are looking to build a book of business where you can go to the shore for a month and nobody will call you, like you probably don't, you'd probably don't want that person in your book. So yes, there will be, you know, the overall score, there will be the goals and the return on effort score. There will be the goals and the value of advice score relative to those goals. We have four specific behavioral tendencies that to look at. These were outlined in my book, The Behavioral Investor. I took the universe. This was some of the research that I did. I took the universe of 200 something bad biases, and I broke it down into the four sort of primary biases. So this is emotion, attention, conservatism, and overconfidence. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to report on, on all of those things. You know, emotion is emotionality. Attention is the tendency to be drawn in by the news. Uh, conservatism is, you know, loss aversion, status quo bias, things like that. And then overconfidence is just what it sounds like. So you'll get, you know, their data on all that relative to the population. Then you'll get the commitments, the pre-commitment piece I talked about. Well, and then uh, I haven't even talked about, I haven't even talked about the, the coolest part of the whole thing. We wanted this to be dynamic, right? We wanted this to be ongoing and not just sit on a shelf somewhere. And so what we also do is we have an, an advisor portal where when we encounter situations in the actual market that mirror those that gave them problems in the game, mm. the advisor will be notified Interesting. to say, you know, it's like pre-crime from minority. <laughs> report, <laughs> <That's right? good. laughs> I was about to make that next to the analogy, you know, it's called next best action in the, in the, in the uh, AI world, but really, yeah, sure. you're, you're pre-criming this thing. And that's, I, I got to tell you, that's a load off my cognitive burden. If you can flash up, you know, call these people because it's this time, but this is the type of thing that makes them freak out. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're going to do well with this, quite honestly. So, so. And I'm also glad you plugged your book. That's The Behavioral Investor, which is a New York Times uh, bestseller. And you also have another one, I believe, The Laws of Wealth, Psychology and Secrets right. of Investing Success. So uh, mm-hmm. highly encourage people to check out both of those in addition to Tulip. Before we wrap up, there's three questions I ask everybody. Uh, just kind of blue sky, make you think once. Um, if you had one wish for something you could change in your company or the industry as a whole, what would it be? <sighs> I think greater transparency. I'm surprised at how little information is is still out there about how advisors get compensated, where the fees really go, what the funds really cost. It's even hard to find a good advisor because there's not a whole lot of information. It's all pretty opaque. Like it's all hidden behind these sort of official government reports that are, you know, layers deep and hard to read. So greater transparency and more client centrism, I think would be, would be positive developments. Fantastic. Well, I, you would be both. Uh, it's a big bone to pick for me in general. Second question for you. In developing Tulip, what has been the biggest challenge you've faced? Learning to, I mean, I will be totally ununique in this respect, but learning to communicate a technical vision to a group of creatives, right? You Learning to, mm-hmm. learning to translate sort of my wonky behavioral analytics stuff and make it 
make it look beautiful, like make it simple, make it intuitive, make it immersive so that it feels like the client is actually living through this thing and not this stilted robotic process. So translating these analytical behavioral pieces and making them just as user-friendly as possible. And then the last question I have for you is what excites you the most about what it is you're working on? Doesn't have to be tool up, could be your position of brinker or whatever it is, but what keeps you getting up every morning and plugging ahead? What excites me is just being, again, kind of like I said from the outside, being able to systematize and standardize the delivery of good, of good coaching. For a full decade, I stood on stages, talked to groups of large financial advisors, had absolute enthusiasm, just love for behavioral finance, great enthusiasm, a great buy-in around the field, and then just seemingly nothing to like yeah. help it stick. So yeah. It's big, almost like a self-help seminar, right? Like a lot of, some people may take some stuff away, but in general just falls on deaf ears in most cases. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Without an action plan, you know, it's a lot of cases, it's just like financial advice without an action plan and follow-up, how do you expect success? But you're at the forefront of actually taking abstract concepts and, and making them actionable. So I thank you for that. And I'm looking very forward to playing around with this one. It's ready to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Me and you both. So, Daniel, thank you very much for your time uh, and and for your effort, because I think this is, like I said, um, you're kind of at the forefront of the next wave of understanding client behavior and helping match that to risk tolerance. It's just a starting point. I can see this going a lot farther than where we discussed just this, just so far, but I think it's a great potential. I would very much look forward to seeing it fully implemented. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on to talk about it. No, my pleasure. Thank you, and uh, take care. So that was my interview with Dr. Daniel Crosby of Tulip. I hope you enjoyed that. I'm looking forward very much so to playing around with the platform when it's done. And in addition to that, uh, for those of you who have not picked up his books, I highly recommend them. So as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever's at your podcasts. It really does help other people discover it. Thank you and take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.